0: Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. You are listening to a Yisker sermon by Rabbi Adam Kligfeld. I am so grateful for Zoom, and I hate it. In fact, I don't remember in my life having so much simultaneous appreciation and scorn for the same thing more than what I have of both towards Zoom right now. Without Zoom, there's no digital minion, no congregational Seder during COVID, no virtual camp or family reunions, no school or just about anything over the last 13 months. And like many of you, I'm just done with screens and reducing prayer and communal gatherings and work meetings to what looks like the opening credits of the Brady Bunch. Thank God for Zoom truly, and may God spare us from Zoom. We should add that line to the Avinu Malkenu. Those dual and opposing feelings towards Zoom were on full display, in our community over the last few weeks. We are, as many of you know, back in the orange zone. Infections are, for now, low. Vaccination rates are high. We can begin to gather regularly again, outdoors here on Zering Field, as many of us are doing today, for Shabbat and for holidays, B'nai Mitzvah. Beyond that, we started, as many of you know, this past week, gathering for Daily Minyan indoors. In our sanctuary limited to 15 people still masked and distanced of course but what a moment what a return what a not so small triumph it's all good news right not right within our wonderful and very committed daily minion community who share thoughts and personal updates and ideas about prayer and community, both when we actually gather and also on a special Daily Minion WhatsApp group, there was some uproar. If you're gathering a Minion in person, does that mean I can no longer lead a part of the service on Zoom? If you're gathering a Minion in person and everyone disperses after the services are over, Will anyone be listening as I share memories of my mother on her York site? If you're gathering a minion in person, reforming as a community, and I myself am not yet comfortable being in person, or I don't live in L.A., am I about to lose my sense of community again? Versions of these concerns were articulated with heart, with candor, and vulnerability by several Daily Minion regulars, including those who have somehow found the Beth-Thom community in the last year, even though they don't live in L.A., and for whom our virtual Daily Minion has been a life jacket, an anchor, a source of tremendous nourishment. A year ago, all of us rude the move from actual to virtual. How could prayer possibly be meaningful in that setting? And now some of us are ruling the move from virtual back to actual. As if that too is another loss to suffer. How do we make sense of that phenomenon of people mourning the highly anticipated surrender of something that was always meant to be a second best stopgap? And people questioning the passionately ached for return to the original. I'm reminded of conversations I have had with people in the aftermath of a loved one's death, particularly the death of someone the person was intimately and at times overwhelmingly responsible for as the person aged or suffered from debilitating illness. I remember a specific conversation with a member of my school in New York. She was my children's pediatrician still an active physician in her late 70s and early 80s. Her husband, also a pediatrician, suffered a brutal decline into Alzheimer's, robbing them of the golden years they had anticipated so mightily and which they deserved. Her life was very limited and both logistically and emotionally draining. She got more help as he aged and declined, but she was still the primary caregiver and was so psychologically tied to his ailment and infirmity. They had shared a truly profound and legendary love before he got ill. And the intensity of the love thus matched the intensity of her sorrow as he deteriorated. She admitted to me more than once, with guilt I wish I could have relieved from her that she was ready for him to go that she wanted him to go. There was nothing left of him, and her life was profoundly hard. She ached for a release. And then he died, and we buried him, and she mourned through Shiva. And soon after, we talked, and she said two things to me, one obvious and one less so. The obvious one was that she was sad and she missed him, of course. The less obvious one was that she missed the caretaking, the onerous task of keeping him well and clean and safe. She missed being needed. She missed the burden. She finally had what she had been aching for, a redemption from endless and heartbreaking sustenance of her debilitated husband. And she wished on some level to have it back. Not just to have him back, of course, well and healthy, but to have that era of her intense care of him back. I think of those mourning the beginning of the end of Zoom. And I think of my congregant mourning her husband and also the overwhelming burden of caring for him. And I think of something extraordinary, In the human condition, we are meaning makers. We pull meaning and purpose from even the hardest of circumstances. We vent and we cry about the challenges upon us, understandably. But amidst the crucible of those challenges, our souls are active. We are producing memories and meaning. We are living even when it seems hard to live. Our ancestors were the same, rhapsodizing in the desert about how good they had it in Egypt. Many examples in B'midbar chapter 11, verse 5, the Israelites are dissatisfied with the manna from heaven. You know, the stuff that came down every day in a miracle for free and which according to the midrash tasted like anything you wanted it to. Even Wonka could not do better than that. But it was not enough for the Israelites. Zaharnu, Hadaga, we remember the tasty fish. Asher no chalba mitzrayim that we ate in Egypt. It was free. ha Kishuim and the cucumbers. Veta Avatichim and the juicy watermelon. Veta the leeks. Why anybody would think highly about a leek they once ate, I'm not so sure. Viet Salim, the onions. Viet the garlic. The French commentator Chizkuni says that the inclusion of garlic means that the Israelites were fantasizing not only about the food and the menu in Egypt, but even the seasoning and the preparation were so decadent. A cynical read on the scene suggests the Israelites are insufferable and they lack gratitude. Has much changed? A more psychologically (laughs) astute reading might be that even ensconced and trapped in Egypt, enslaved to a tyrant, longing for freedom, they were living and making life meaningful and even tasty. Are there more poignant midrashim than the ones that imagine Israelite men and women making themselves beautiful to woo one another while slaves in Egypt, forcing themselves to find love and meaning amidst despair? and thus ensuring the next generation. In book after book and movie after movie about the horrors and degradations of the experience of slavery in America, few sub-themes move me more than how slaves found a way to build families even as their masters were tearing them apart, how they kissed and made love amidst filth and suffering we can't imagine and how they sang and created a culture of music and storytelling whose conceptual descendants animate our modern American culture to this day. Would any freed slave actually want to go back to slavery, whether in the antebellum south or pharaoh's Egypt? I don't think so. But while there, they were suffering, and for those who survived, living and making meaning. Now, any instinct or tendency overdone in excess is problematic and dangerous. An overly sympathetic association with your own incarceration can lead to Stockholm Syndrome or to giving up on the hope of liberation and thus to the death of the spirit. But an insufficiency of extracting meaning out of the hardest of what is placed upon us leaves days, weeks, months, And years of our life devoid of meaning. We can both wish for an end to an era and realize how much we have grown and gained while in that very era. Pulling meaning out of just about anything is a human instinct and driving force. It's also a Jewish art form. And we tend to do it particularly well around loss and grief and mourning. I want to give you an exquisite example of this in the form of a recent situation. A dear colleague of mine was in a few weeks ago, he officiated at a funeral where it was just he at the grave. Because of COVID, no one from the family was in attendance or even there digitally. The funeral director stood at a distance, and the cemetery, cemetery workers were even farther away. In my friend's words, I was the only person there. Can you imagine the scene? And what it must have felt like for him? As he tells a story in his own words, I recited all of the appropriate prayers, and then I offered my eulogy. Everyone deserves to have words said at their funerals. Again, just imagine it. he's standing at the grave. No one else is present, just the unhearing body of a man who lived, being told words about him now that he had died. Back to my friend's words I spoke to the man who died, and I told him that I was sorry that I was the only person there at this holy moment. I shared the words that his family members wanted me to share at the grave, and I reflected on some of his qualities. I concluded the eulogy by telling this man that I hoped he did not feel alone. I was was there. People who loved him were there with him in spirit. Our shul and the Jewish people were standing by as well. And I offered the prayer that God's presence would bring his soul gently under the wings of the Shekhinah and that he would feel loved, held, and safe. I told him that I hoped he could rest and peace. I am astounded and moved by my friend's actions and his words. He told the deceased he was not alone and he wasn't. My friend ensured that would be the case. This to me is an exemplary model of extracting meaning from the most hopeless of situations. And I know two things very confidently that my friend hopes never to do such a funeral again and that he might never feel as holy or as much of an agent of the divine at any future funeral. Yisker makes the same request of us, my friends, and offers us the same opportunity to convert wallowing into wonder to allow reverie to be restorative, to draw meaning out of mourning. The Shoah survivor and renowned psychoanalyst Viktor Frankl believed and wrote that man can endure any hardship as long as he could find meaning in the experience. And we know that depression is both a true medical malady and also at times the natural result of living a life without purpose independent of one's circumstances. Those objectively blessed can be bereft if they derive no meaning from their pleasures. And those objectively cursed can have their souls sore if they impute meaning to their moments, even and especially their hardest ones. So let your memories during this Yisker rouse you and hold you may your tears be awakened by the pain of your loss itself a measure of your love and may you also cry with some sense of tender pride at the very meaning you have drawn not only from the lives of those you mourn but from the process of losing them and mourning them and learning to live without them. We recall the past, and we march forward, and we continue to live, and we continue to love. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts.